Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 148, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, praise Him all His angels, praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun and moon, praise Him all you stars of light, praise Him you heavens of heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for He commanded and they were created. As our hymn of praise, uh, let us remain standing and sing together hymn number 54. Thank you again for the hour of worship. We recognize how feeble and weak we are. We are mindful uh, not only of our own weakness and frailty, but of uh, the sin which so easily entangles us and uh, the trials and the temptations which surround us in the world. God, uh, as we as we said this morning, our causes are failing. The world is the world is uh, not a place in which conservative Christians are are able to to gain much of a foothold and even when we do it 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 never lasts uh we are just we really are pilgrims we are wandering through we are despised we are rejected and so it has been since the beginning and every now and again we begin to think uh that that our day is 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 at hand to gain the upper hand and to begin to be a mighty force in the world and lord it's it's all such folly and it's all such uh, a fleeting vanishing uh, thought and 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 God, we ask you that you would uh, you would you would reinforce in us uh, a deeper and abiding sense of what it is to be a disciple passing through this world. Our Father who art in heaven, in, in, in a sense, there is the whole outlook of the disciple. You are in heaven, and we are here, and we are 
we are asking, of course, that your will would be on earth, uh, your, your will and your kingdom would come and be done on earth as it is in heaven. But our greatest desire is for heaven itself. Our greatest desire is to get there. It is to, uh, to progress and to, uh, uh, not not to be entangled and stumbling and falling and conforming to the world. We wish to be transformed after the image of Christ and through the renewing of our mind. And so, Father, if, if forces should seem against us, and, and even increasingly so, and if we should feel increasingly that we have little or no place in this in this country or in this world, Father, it is only because it, it has always been like this. It's strange to think, but even Moses was a bit of an outcast in Israel while they were in the wilderness. And so even if we should set up this grand theocracy, still the faithful would be few and still they would be despised. So, God, we look to you and we confess to you that we need a bit of encouragement. And we also need uh, in that word uh, courage. We need you to strengthen us, to give us a fortitude to face whatever you should have for us. And to even glory in the face of possible persecution. Lord, may nothing deter us. And certainly may nothing deter the ministers of your church. From preaching your word. And from proceeding uh, to, to hold worship services. And to, uh, to, to, to honor God. To seek to honor God. Throughout uh, the coming days. Whatever should come. Father, we, we would prefer to be. At peace with the world, but you, you as you came into the world, gracious Savior said, you didn't come to bring peace but a sword. And so the sword of division is in your hand, and in some sense it's in our hands. And it's really the stand that we take that separates us from the world, not the world that separates itself from us. The world would happily take us in. We know if we would just conform to its way of thinking, but we simply refuse to do it. And so, Father, as we possess this sword after a fashion, we ask you that we would hold fast to it and even that we would wield it and that we would happily say that we side and we stand with Christ and that our allegiance is to our fellow Christians above every other allegiance which we possess, whether it is uh, nationality or race or, or family uh, or, or, or whatever. But above all, we would say we are Christians. And yes, too, we are Protestants and we are Presbyterians, but our greatest uh, allegiance and our greatest love is for our fellow Christian, whether he be a Presbyterian or not. And so, Father, look after us. Look after this uh, this small band of disciples here at Calvary. Uh, care for us as our shepherd. We we elders are, are but under shepherds, but we look to you as the as the chief shepherd to look after and care for the church, protect her, to lead her on, and to give us greater faith as we as we go on in worship. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Genesis chapter 15, and then Galatians 3, the strangest of parallels, uh, Moses just mentions in Exodus chapter 12 that 430 years had passed since Israel had come to Egypt. You wouldn't think anything about it uh, except for the fact that it, it turns out it's a highly significant detail, both in the giving of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 and then the exposition of the fulfillment of the promise in Galatians chapter 3 where the 400 or the 430 years is mentioned in both places. So keep that in mind as we read these two passages and then eventually as we read a portion of Exodus 12. Genesis chapter 15 verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, no certainly... 
that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And there, obviously, the Lord is speaking of their time in Egypt and their their return to the promised land. Galatians chapter three, verse uh, verse 15 Again, notice the reference, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God and Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Let us stand together and sing the doxology in response to God's word. on with me in the Apostles' Creed in your bulletin, and let us read and recite together those words, saying together now, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hymn 241 is our hymn of preparation. Let us stand together and sing. Amen. Uh-huh. 
please be seated. Turn with me or listen on to Exodus chapter 12. The Exodus begun is the title. If, if I could do that over again, I would actually title that, entitle that, The Death of the Firstborn. It's a solemn passage. A harbinger, as I'll say, of the judgment to come, of which we just sung. A day of gladness for the saints, a day of terrible woe for the, for the wicked. Just as we find here. For one, a day of deliverance for another, a day of terrible judgment. Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the, in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall not be dead, we shall, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their, their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses, uh, Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. That is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Uh, it's a word which is, as always, full of instruction and encouragement and consolation. Equally, it is a word which is full of uh, truths which we find terrible, uh, but only terrible because our sin has made it so. And so let us be willing uh, to deal with these things honestly and to rejoice uh, in our Savior who causes your wrath, your destroying wrath to pass by. Amen. Well, it is here that the Exodus begins in earnest. It begins, we see, with the striking of the firstborn. This is the tenth plague. This does not mean that all who were firstborn were, were struck down, but only those who were still children, the firstborn children of the home. All at once, at midnight, these children were dead. It was a grievous calamity, but it should have been no surprise. The Lord had said it would come, and so it did. Following this, we see Israel at last set out on the Exodus, observing after a fashion the Feast of Unleavened Bread as she went, 
and as she would do throughout her generations, eating uh, unleavened bread on the way. And there are several things that we are able to notice about this passage. As the Exodus begins and the firstborn is struck. And the first is uh, the nature of the tenth plague, the, the striking of the firstborn. As I've sought to stress, the ten plagues follow a natural division and progression. The first three were common to all and the least terrible. Even uh, Israel and Goshen experienced those three. After that, they begin to increase in intensity, beginning with the fourth plague, the second set of three. Beginning with that fourth plague, a distinction was made between Israel and Egypt that has followed all the way through the tenth. So beginning with that, uh, the plagues do not fall upon Israel and Goshen. But with the last set of three, beginning with the seventh, they grow more terrible still as a harbinger of the woe that the tenth plague will bring. Increasingly, we also see how God was dealing with Pharaoh as an individual, judging him for his hard heart and refusing to let the people go. Yet all along, we see the Lord never relented in his request, nor in his determination that his people would serve him, even as Pharaoh would let them go. But the tenth plague is set apart by this feature, that it came directly from the hand of the Lord himself. He was directly, not through an intermediary, but directly as an act of divine power, imposing himself upon Pharaoh and the land of Egypt. As the the prior nine plagues came from the staff of Moses, the Lord working through his agency, the tenth had no intermediary. It was the direct act of God, the destroyer coming in judgment. And so we should notice and feel the force of these words in verse 29. It came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. It doesn't say all the the firstborn died. It said the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Let us solemnly consider that truth. And discover the true meaning and the nature of the tenth plague. Here we get a glimpse. And it is but a glimpse. Of how terrible his judgments can be. You say that is terrible. What can be worse? I assure you. The day of judgment will be far worse. For the sinner. Can we behold what the Lord does here. In striking the firstborn. And pretend the Lord is the friend of sinners. That the Lord is not only slow to anger, but has no anger at all. Recently, I've seen it become a kind of catchphrase in modern culture to say, no more hate. Well, let me tell you, God is one who hates. And his hatred is terrible and mighty. He hates sin with a perfect hatred as one who is perfect in holiness. And I can prove that to you by quoting to you Psalm 5, if this isn't enough for you, what we read in Exodus chapter 12. Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil shall dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You see, it doesn't say you hate iniquity. You love love the sinner, but you hate the sin. He hates the sinner. Do you hear me? You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Man. I feel as though every sermon recently has been difficult, but here we are. This is what the exposition of the word requires. 
And the church would do well to learn this about him. That though he is slow to anger, he is not devoid of anger. See him here and learn this truth. And let us cherish the full truth about Jehovah as stated in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. I will read it again, uh, just as I've been doing in almost every sermon. Description of the meaning of the name Jehovah. Do we glory in both aspects, beloved? The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Is that not what we see here? Indeed, an instance of both, both an instance of his mercy that he does not strike all at once, but that he saves his most terrible blow for the last. But there at the last, we see how terrible his wrath can be. I've never read uh, Sinners in the Hands of, the, of, a, of, uh, of an Angry God. I should. Uh, but anyways, I, I had someone tell me, a reliable source, and you can correct me if this isn't true, any of you who've read it, that Jonathan Edwards says in that sermon that the righteous will not only rejoice at the damnation of the wicked on the last day, but even of their own relatives, so great will their joy be at the righteousness And the righteous anger of the Lord displayed there. Well, whether he says it or not, and again, if you've read the sermon, let me know. I should read it, though, shouldn't I? Whether he said it or not, it's certainly true, isn't it? And let the righteous rejoice in all his attributes and all his actions, his mercy and his wrath. And his great hatred for sin and for sinners. I know that's difficult to say and it's unpopular. I remember reading in, in seminary for the first time as though it was an epiphany. Even though it said so clearly in the Bible. Van Til saying, do you know God hates the sinner? When he says he will by no means clear the guilty. And that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And the children's children. Let us be sure that we know he means it. And let us with Moses consider and bow and worship. Verse 8. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And let us pray for the church who fails so much to grasp this about God. Verse 9. I'm in Exodus 34 still. He said, If I have now found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Seeing this about God, let us plead for the welfare of the church. Look here and see, back in Exodus 12, it was children whom the Lord slayed. How can I minimize this? Can we sugarcoat this fact that God is the one who brings death? Even to a child. Again, here he is called the destroyer. And it is he who exacts justice upon man. Death being the wages of sin. Can we consider the death of a child and not see this? And lament and mourn that sin should be so grievous as to exact this kind of justice upon man. And do we fault God for his judgments? What man has ever died, whether in infancy or at a ripe old age, but by the hand of the Lord? 
But for him to take life is not for him to murder. He is not breaking the sixth commandment. It is rather for him righteously to execute a perfect justice upon the sinner, just as he declared in the garden. The day you sin, you shall surely die. Just as he promised to Pharaoh and the Egyptians through Moses. Death, again, being the wages of sin. There is the righteous wrath of God revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and sin. God here was doing only but what he said he would and what was righteous for him to do. And what he warned man he would do if he would not repent. If man chooses death when he is offered life, can God be faulted for this? Is not man the author of his own ruin? Beyond this, still speaking of the nature of the tenth plague, under the first heading, let us see the extent of his judgment. It not only affects the children, but the firstborn of man and beast alike. This judgment sweeps through the nation and none are exempt. Pharaoh was not safe in his palace, nor was the poor man in his obscurity. Matthew Henry puts it well, prince and peasant stand upon the same level before God's judgments. Of course, some may ask, why must the peasant pay for the sin of his king and why the child for his father? This is a question that every calamity forces us to ask. Every difficult providence. It's the question of theodicy. But it is not one that's difficult to answer, at least not here. The answer is, as Paul declares in Romans chapter 3, that none is righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yes, that includes infants. Even he is not exempt from the wrath and the righteous indignation of God against sin. For he, as we know, is conceived in sin. And what parent doesn't know it? Just as soon as they begin to do anything, they begin to sin. For the, from the first instance that he begins to be, he begins to sin and rebel against God. As a being, he is a sinner. And so none can be exempt from God's judgments unless God should make it so, and he does. He does make exemptions. Thank God for that. We call that grace. Israel is exempt here. Not by her singular righteousness, but solely by God's grace, as we shall see in the second point. These are difficult truths, I realize. But as I say, if the death of the firstborn cannot make you see the extent and the terribleness of God's judgment against sin, nothing will. But, uh, but, but for as terrible as that is, let me also tell you that the terrors of hell will far surpass them. This is but a, a harbinger, it is but a foretaste and a foreshadow of the terrible woe that will befall sinners on the last day. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that hell will be terrible, and yes, far more terrible than what happened on this night in Egypt. There he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Men will cry out for relief, but they will not find it. The flames of fire will forever devour and will never be quenched. Forever the Lord will stand there against the sinner, striking but never sparing. And it is well that we should all see this now before it is too late. The Lord is not slow as to his coming, as some say. He will come in judgment. He will burst forth suddenly to the surprise of the wicked and unbelieving. But today remains the day of salvation. 
as is every day until he comes. Another opportunity to repent and be saved and be spared. Now is the opportunity to be spared from the wrath to come. Not only that, but we know that Jesus came and bled and died that we might be spared. That God in wrath might pass by as we find refuge under the blood, both shed and sprinkled. And oh, that we might turn and be saved while it is still called today. But let us not trifle with the little bit of time that we have left. Listen to the words of John the Baptist when he says, The axe is laid at the very root of the tree. Can you not sense and feel how short the time is and how certain the judgment is to come if we do not turn? And one day it will be said of the sinner, and it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck. And on that day, there will be no more turning from sin. There will rather be a reckoning for all that was done in the flesh, whether good or evil. Such things we behold and see when we consider the tenth plague. The awfulness, the terribleness of the judgment of the Lord which befalls sinners who do not repent. Who do not seize the opportunity while it is still called today. But on the other side, in the second place, following verses 29 through 31, or 29 through 30, we see the favor which Israel enjoyed. And we actually see that word there, that the Lord gave them favor. He gave Israel favor among the Egyptians. He was striking one, he was sparing another. And so for all the terribleness of God's judgment here, his deliverance of Israel is equally remarkable and worthy of our consideration. It is equally something which Israel enjoyed from the Lord himself. The Lord strikes, the Lord spares. He's the subject of both sentences. It isn't man who delivers. It's the Lord the favor that uh, that Israel enjoyed is, is seen in many ways. It is seen in their plundering the Egyptians, something which had been promised and now she enjoyed. A promised part of their deliverance that the Egyptians would be so relieved to be rid of them that they would furnish their journey with gifts. Here is an instance of God's justice equally. Not only that the wealth of nations belongs to him and is at his disposal and he disperses them as he pleases, but also that they who were slaves in Egypt would get their wages at last. It is seen in gaining what they sought. All along Moses contended for one thing before Pharaoh uh, and the Lord through him, that Pharaoh might let his people go, that they might serve him. And so at last they obtained what they sought as a token of favor from the Lord. It happened not at Moses' request, we see, but at the insistence of Pharaoh himself uh, following the tenth plague. He no longer held back. He no longer said, go for a little, but come back. Or send send, uh, the children, but not the sheep. Or send uh, send, uh, part, but not all of the flocks. He told them all to go, releasing them of any obligation to him never to return. With this, they were truly set free. Matthew Henry, note, God's word will stand and we shall get nothing by disputing it, speaking of Pharaoh, or delaying to submit to it. Time and again, the Lord said, here is what I ask, and so I will receive it by any means. You see, God was inflexible in his word as he always is, and he got what he sought at last, namely the worship of his people. Not only that, but Pharaoh's acquiescing to let the people go as God, uh, as God commanded, was. 
was gained as well. Likewise, the favor of the Lord is seen in that they were spared. I will repeat here what I've said before, that Israel enjoyed no favor because she was worthy to be favored. This is something that the Lord makes abundantly clear to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and in many other instances, but I think uh, in chapter 7 of the book of Deuteronomy is put as well as anywhere else. Israel was prone to pride. She thought there was something worthy in her, something special, but the Lord said, as Paul would later say to the Corinthians, there isn't anything remarkable about you at all. You're just as lowly and weak and as worldly as anyone. And yet I spared you and I chose you because it was my prerogative to do so. Chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or uh, choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face and destroys them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. We find here an instance, not of merit, but of mercy. And that's what the Lord was telling them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. They were, they were spared the judgment of the death of the firstborn as the destroyer passed by the bloody doorposts because God, the Lord, was determined to magnify his grace in them and for no other reason. To display his own gracious and kind, uh, kind intention to Israel, though they deserve nothing but wrath. That Israel was no better than the, and then the nations will soon appear, but for now, the visible church would enjoy his favor and special protection. Finally, with regard to the favor she enjoyed, it is seen in their mighty numbers, as is indicated in verse 37. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. You ought to pay attention to the numbers you find in the Old Testament. Numbers like the 430 years or the 600,000 or the 70 who came down from Canaan into Egypt. 600,000 men going out as an army, we read. Likely 2 million persons in all. And to think from a mere 70, they had grown into this multitude in so short a span of time, relatively speaking. Yet another instance of divine favor. The Lord doing for Abraham and his children precisely what he said he would. That though Pharaoh set himself as an enemy of their increase, as we read in chapter 1, yet under the singular care and providence of God, they grew into this mighty nation. Chapter 1, verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Verse 20. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew mighty. This small company grew into a nation. 
Here, as I say, was the special promise which God had given to Abraham in chapter 12, that his seed would be a multitude, a vast number, uh, chapter 12 of uh, Genesis, by the way, a vast number like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. See how they prospered by his blessing, the children of Abraham. Men gained many children by their wives. And this small company grew into a multitude by the simple means. Let me just notice here. The path to greatness is always to have children. Yes, we may be obscure today, a small company, but with time we may grow into a mighty nation. We should see God's faithfulness in this, a faithfulness to his promise, a faithfulness to his people. In giving them children, an increase in growth which was tangible and eventually formidable. Our confession Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith in the chapter on marriage rightly states that the visible church is meant to increase by a holy seed. And that is what we see here in Exodus chapter 12 and what we ought to see in the church today. We also see, let me just notice in passing, you might have wondered what this meant, a mixed multitude which has a twofold significance, uh, I would think, although I confess I am not altogether clear about uh, the meaning here or the significance, and I did not find all that much uh, help from the commentators, but let me just briefly mention these two points. Uh, the first point, that it was a kind of fulfillment of the prophecy given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that through Abraham the nations would be blessed. And so here as she went out, Israel, uh, out of her bondage, Others went with her, the nations. But uh, on the other side, we also realized this was a mixed blessing as we later find these foreigners became a snare to them in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. I have nothing more to say about that. But we should see next in the third place that they were called not to boast in themselves. And we saw this also in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Not to boast in themselves, but having experienced the sparing mercies of the Lord to glory in the Lord. And that is why this becomes, this deliverance becomes a pattern and, uh, and an opportunity for worship. The worship of the church was to be informed by the salvation of the Lord. And, and worship here is seen as for us as a continual remembrance and enjoyment of that deliverance. The Lord supplies this church with more than enough reason to worship him. And so here the Lord says to them, was a day to remember, and surely it was, as the bread of affliction, as it is called in chapter 16, verse 3 of the book of Deuteronomy, and the troubles connected with their departure from Egypt, I'm quoting Kyle and Dillich here, were merely the introduction to the new life of liberty and grace. So according to the counsel of God, the bread of affliction was to become holy food to Israel, the days of their exodus being exalted by the Lord into a seven days feast in which the people of Jehovah were to commemorate to all ages their deliverance. Verse 39. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Verse 42. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. Matthew Henry puts it even better, connecting this old covenant ordinance with the better things of the gospel. He says this Passover night was a night of the Lord much to be observed. But the last Passover night in which Christ was betrayed 
was a night of the Lord much more to be observed when a yoke heavier than that of Egypt was broken off from our necks and a land better than that of Canaan set before us. That was a temporal deliverance to be celebrated in their generations. This an eternal redemption to be celebrated in the praises of the glorious saints world without end. So they were to glory in the Lord, not in themselves. And their worship, which they enjoyed, subsequent to this, were seen as a direct result of the, of the deliverance they enjoyed, as with us again. But finally, in the fourth place, we should consider the significance of the 430 years mentioned in verse 40. Let me read that verse again. Now, the sojourn of the children of Egypt who lived uh, of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. Again, notice the numbers. We might be inclined to pass over and say it doesn't matter. Uh, but if we were to study the matter a little bit, we would suddenly discover that a great deal is made of those 430 years in two highly significant chapters. Genesis 15 and, and Galatians 3, two of the most important chapters concerning the doctrine of the covenants, which you will find in Scripture, especially with regard to the establishment of the covenant of grace. And the question which the 430 years forces us to ask here is what bearing did Israel coming out of Egypt have upon the, uh, the unfolding and the fulfillment of the covenant of grace promised to Abraham? And so, first of all, this calls to mind the 430 years, calls to mind what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15, which we considered earlier in the scripture reading. I won't read it again. We see there that it was a matter of certainty. No, for certain, he says in verse 13, that uh, that Abraham's descendants will dwell in a land not theirs. They'll be oppressed. They'll be afflicted. And the certainty of this prophetic word is proved by the fact themselves. That as the Lord said, after so many years, they would be delivered. Now, he said 400 years in uh, Genesis 15, and here it's 430, just as in Galatians 3. That it was 430 years rather than 400 is of no concern, however, since the number 400 given to Abraham was evidently, as Kyle and Dillard say, an approximate one. It would be approximately 400 years, and so it was. We not only see the certainty of this, but once again, the justice of it. God would not judge the Amorite until his iniquity was complete. And so he doesn't do so all at once. He waits. That he would afflict the people of God is the stranger thing. Not that he waits to strike the Amorite or the Egyptian, but that he promises and he does afflict the children of Abraham. And yet we should also know that this is his common method of blessing. He afflicts those whom he loves. So it was with the sons of Abraham, and so it is with us. We also learn from Hebrews chapter 11 that it was by dwelling in a foreign land that they learned the spiritual hope of a heavenly Jerusalem that awaited them. But the greatest point of significance here with regard to the 430 years is spelled out in Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to turn there now and exposit the, that chapter a little bit. Since Paul takes that fact and he gives an exposition of his own telling us the true significance for the New Covenant believer of the 430 years. This is what he says. I'll read it again. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one unto your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God 
before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. In other words, just to put it very simply, though, I'll, I'll, I'll be a little less simple than this. Uh, in speaking of the 430 years, the Lord was drawing to mind the promise given to Abraham. That's the point. And so we ought to consider that promise. Surely we can agree what is said in Galatians chapter 3 is one of the more fascinating statements we find with regard to the Mosaic Covenant in its relation to the covenant made with Abraham prior to that and both in their relation to the new covenant in Christ made after both. That the 430 years comes in once again here tells us it is significant even for the New Testament believer. Here in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul is telling us of the way of faith in contrast to works, verses 2 and 3. This only I want you to learn, I, I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Verses 5 through 9, he says, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with, of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and was counted, uh, it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in all, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And so forth. That's uh, the argument here. He's arguing against uh, the error of legalism. Those who seek either to be saved or to be perfected by works of the law. Not just the Galatians, but we also know the Israelites. And here was the trouble. Here is the essential trouble of legalism. It is that it seeks salvation not in the promise given to Abraham, Genesis 15, but in the law, which was given to Moses, as we'll later read in Exodus 20, we're almost there. They've almost made it to Mount Sinai. But that represents a failure to understand the structure and the relationship of the covenants and what it was God was doing through these two men, all leading up to the coming of Christ. And so he tells us what God was doing in verses 15 through 18. In essence, I've just read it. I won't read it again. He wasn't doing anything different. When Moses came along, he wasn't setting aside what he did with Abraham. The law, he says, which came later on, well after Israel came into Egypt 430 years later, does not annul the promised inheritance given to Abraham in the early chapters of Genesis. Nor does it tell us how we are to inherit it. God didn't give the law to Israel to say, by keeping this, you will inherit the promise. Though that was uh, her her, uh, flawed thinking and her legalism. The way we inherit it and the way we become Abraham's children, Paul says, is the same way that Abraham was saved. And that is by having faith, plain and simple. And the law, which came later after the fact, after this arrangement was put in place, the promise given to Abraham, the law given later at Sinai, did nothing to alter or annul this covenant. It was merely an addition, not an alteration. The inheritance was never meant to come through the law, except insofar as the law made faith more likely to occur, not less. It was, uh, as Paul says, 
Well, uh, let me just read verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? And again, that's the law is given at Sinai. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Verse 24. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. That was the value of the law, that it was leading us to faith itself. Not that it was its own way or its own means. And so it was a help in that sense. But it was never meant to be more. Not for Israel nor for us. What God was doing 430 years later, I say again, was nothing essentially different than what he was doing with Abraham, our father. And what he was doing when Christ came into the world and established the church. All of us together are meant to see, as Father Abraham did, and as Paul argues so strongly in the book of Galatians, that justification is by faith alone and by no other way, not by works of the law, that we are his true spiritual seed when we share a faith like his. Only then does he become our father after the faith, not after the flesh. And only then does the error of legalism cease to ensnare us when we rightly understand the purpose of the law and the structure of the covenants. Again, read uh, Galatians chapter 3 and you will see it. You will see the priority given not to the law but to the promise. And it always has been. But the trouble of legalism will always persist so long as we fail to see this basic point. How it was the inheritance came and why it was God added the law so many years later. So we see how easily... We are led to Christ in all our reading of the Old Testament, all of it. With this mention of the 430 years, we are reminded of Jacob coming into Egypt and the time his descendants spent there, which brings us back uh, further to the faith of the patriarchs before them and the covenant God made with them, in, in, in particular Abraham. Not one of works, but one of grace through faith. That was their salvation. And God was not changing that one whit so many years later. He was still doing the same thing. He was only making it clearer to them how needful it was to have faith by giving the law. And then this equally forces us to consider how it was that God intended to fulfill this promise to Abraham made so many years before. Well, you see, Paul answers that in verse 16. He says, now, to Abraham and his seed, where the promise is made, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. The promise was fulfilled when Christ was born. The seed is Christ. Beyond that, he says, verses 26 and following, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many, uh, uh, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Again and again, the point is, by faith alone we are saved, and in particular faith in Christ, the promised seed, the promised mediator. For, for Abraham, for Moses, for Israel, and for us. The way of salvation is and always has been one and the same. Let us see it, even with the passage of all these years. And so my point is, we have to be careful students of the Bible. We have to take care how we read our Bibles and see how easily we can be ensnared, not only in the error of legalism, but all manner of error. If we fail to give priority to the promise. 
We must see how it is that God is unfolding and revealing his grace, making us heirs of the promises promised to Abraham. It wasn't when he brought Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai and gave the law. That had a real and definite purpose, and soon we will see it. But it was not by these means that Israel or us would inherit the promise. She, like us, must look by faith to the promise of a mediator, Abraham's true and spiritual seed. But as we have these reminders of the passage of time, we are reminded to look back to what God did before those 430 years and to ask, what was his original purpose? He hadn't set that aside. No, it was all still the same purpose promised to Abraham long ago, a promise realized in the coming of Christ. That is what we must see. And that is the significance of the 430 years, among, among other things. Amen. And let us respond to God's word by standing together and singing hymn number 60. blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.